Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. It's in Luke's gospel that, that we see Jesus' overwhelming concern for women and children, for widows and orphans, for prodigals and publicans, for the poor and the possessed, for the Samaritan and the leper, and, and on and on and on. Luke is presenting Jesus in a way that, well, those who were looking for perfection, well, they could see it in him. We now begin a new book. Today we start with the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at the first 25 verses of chapter 1 in a message that Pastor Sam has entitled, A Godly Family. We will be studying the events leading up to the miraculous birth of John the Baptist and the message that his father was given by the angel Gabriel about his son's pending birth. So let's listen in. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're looking at the first 25 verses, title of our study this morning, A Godly Family. You should know that the family is the building block of society, that, that godly families are the foundation for godly, healthy fellowships and godly, healthy communities, godly, healthy societies. And because we live in an age where the family is so splintered and disintegrated, I think it's so essential that we, we go back to, well, what does God plan and purpose for the family? Understanding that, well, when we say here's God's perfect plan, well, lots of us aren't really in the midst of being able to experience that. There are lots and lots of single parents in this fellowship through death or divorce, other situations. And, and so it's essential that, that we see this, we know what God intended, and then we look and say, well, what do we do about the person who can't experience that, who isn't experiencing that? What is our opportunity and responsibility? Because God intends the church to be an extended family. And where you have a single mom and, and uh, well, then, then, well, the single mom has the Lord, but she also needs godly men around to, to watch out for her, to watch out for her kids, to be an example to them. And we're going to see the importance of all that as we look at this chapter together or the beginning of this chapter. Well, it all begins as always in verse one. And as much as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to them, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Luke He's a physician. He is a companion of the Apostle Paul, but he is the one of the four gospel writers that was not an eyewitness to the events that he lays out for us. So he begins his gospel by acknowledging those who were and who had already published. And, and then he begins to tell us why he undertook writing and recording these things for us. He, he gives us three reasons he wrote his gospel initially. He says he had a perfect understanding of all things from the very first. Now he gained this through personal interviews. If he wasn't an eyewitness, he went to those who were eyewitnesses. And, uh, and then having gathered all the information, he puts together what he describes as being an orderly account. He wants to make sure that he's not leaving things out, that he's laying things out exactly as they happened. He writes to a friend, his name Theophilus, the, the, the name means lover of God. 
So if you're a lover of God, well, I would think this is written to you as well. And then he tells us the why, that you may know the certainty of the things in which you were instructed. And that's my prayer for each and every one of you. That's my plan as we walk through Luke together, that you would be rooted and established and secured in the absolute truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus did and what that means. Now, there are four Gospels, and it's interesting. I, I hear a lot of questions or, or comments about the different Gospel accounts. I think I might watch too much TV because I'm always coming across people that aggravate the heck out of me on TV. And, uh, and I saw a guy not long ago who was saying that, well, there must be something wrong with these Gospel writers because he was talking about the things Jesus said from the cross. We just studied that. And he was saying, you know, one gospel writer says this, another gospel writer says this, another gospel writer says this. Apparently they couldn't get their story straight. He, I think he wrote a book called Jesus Interrupted. He's another knucklehead who's, you know, very intelligent, but, but he, he looks at the thing and says, well, they didn't all say the same thing, so there must be something wrong. I would suggest otherwise. In fact, I would suggest if four people see an accident, just one event at one point in time, and they described it word for word exactly, we would become suspicious and think, wait a minute, they must have got together and, and got their story word for word straight. The reality is, is that each of these gospel writers had some freedom in writing. Yes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, because all scripture is given by inspiration of God. But he allows them to use their own insights and personalities and, and those things that struck them and mattered most to them. And, and, and so when we look at the four gospels, we do see there are differences, but those differences are actually a good thing. Matthew writes his gospel to the Jews. We know that because he presents Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. He calls him the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He writes in his key phrase when Matthew writes is, is that it might be fulfilled. He's writing to people who have the Old Testament. They know the Old Testament and he's showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of the many prophecies related to the coming of Messiah there in the Old Testament. Now, Mark's gospel is very different from Matthew's gospel. Mark is writing to the Romans. The Romans don't know the Old Testament. They could care less about the prophecies of Scripture. So when, when Mark writes his gospel, well, he presents Jesus not as the long-awaiting uh, awaited Messiah or the King of Israel. I mean, the Romans aren't going to want to hear about that. He presents him as a suffering servant, as a man who was under authority. And the Romans were way big on this. You might remember the story of the centurion who comes to Jesus and he's looking for help. And he says, I'm a man under authority and I'm a man who exercises authority. So they were big on authority and submission and, and they were big on action. The Romans weren't real readers. They weren't sitting around deep thinkers. They were doers you see. And so the, the gospel of Mark, by the way, the one they often translate first on the mission field, because when you come to a people that has no background or no understanding of the scripture at all, well, what you want to do is present Jesus as the one who can do what no one else can do. The key word in Mark is straight away in the old King James or immediately in the new King James. And, and it's a gospel filled with action. Then John's gospel, and I skip ahead to there because we want to end on Luke since that's the one we're studying. John's gospel presents, well, Jesus in an entirely different way. Matthew writes to the Jews. 
Mark writes to the Romans. John writes to the church and to the world. It's in John Jesus is described as and presented as the Lord. And I mean the creator of all things in the beginning, you know, he's presented as the one who made all things. And then he's the one he himself became flesh and dwelt among us. He's the one, John 3, 16, who the father so loved the world he gave. That, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So John is focusing on, on Jesus as, well, the one who cares for the whole world, not looking just at the Jews, not just looking at his actions, but, but looking at who he is, the uh, creator and the savior and the sustainer. And then Luke's gospel written primarily for the Greeks. Now, the Greeks were students. They were into literature. They were into beauty. They were into art. And, and so Luke is presenting Jesus in his humanity. He is answering the philosopher's question. If there was a perfect man, what would he look like? And Luke says, this is it. There is a perfect man and this is what he looks like. But he doesn't describe him physically. He describes the kind of man he was, a man full of wisdom, full of compassion. And, and it's in Luke's gospel that Jesus is focused on the last, on the least, on the lost. It's in Luke's gospel that, that we see Jesus' overwhelming concern for women and children, for widows and orphans, for prodigals and publicans, for the poor and the possessed, for the Samaritan and the leper, and, and on and on and on. Luke is presenting Jesus in a way that, well, those who were looking for perfection, well, they could see it in him. Someone wrote, and I copied it down, I thought it was powerful, Matthew looks for the promised Savior, Mark, the powerful Savior, Luke, the perfect Savior, John, the personal Savior. Well, key chapter in Luke's gospel is chapter 15. You might want to jot it down if you're a note taker. You certainly want to make a mental note of it and check it out later because it's in Luke 15 that we see Jesus talking about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Three glorious pictures that show Jesus' heart for the lost. And, and of course, in the lost sheep, he leaves the 99 to go after the one lost, hurting, needy sheep. And the lost coin searches and, and scours to find that one precious coin. And then in the lost son, he's open armed as the prodigal returns home. The key verse, by the way, in Luke's gospel, Luke 19, 10, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's exactly what we're going to be seeing as we go through this chapter. So we have the author, we have his reason for writing, we have the, the uniqueness of this particular gospel. And as we go through, we're going to see there are a lot of things that Luke shares that the other gospels didn't share. And it's interesting since he wasn't an eyewitness, he wasn't relying just on the things he saw and heard and experienced. He's getting as many of the stories about Jesus as he can. He's fitting them into where they happened historically and what they meant um, both prophetically and practically. Well, the timing of all this is given to us in verse 5. It was in the days of Herod. This is one of many called Herod in the New Testament. It was a family name, a dynasty name. But uh, these guys were basically puppet kings. They were put there not by God, but by Rome. 
And so he was ruling over Judea. And we read there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. Now these two have a lot of what we would call natural advantages. Some of you grew up with these as well. In other words, they grew up with a rich religious heritage. They could look back at generation after generation after generation of people who had walked with and served and represented the Lord. He, we're told, was a Levite. That means he was born a priest. She was a descendant of Aaron, the original and first high priest. So, so they've got good stock as far as they're Israelites. They're, they're down in the south. They come from a good background spiritually. And again, some of you have that going for you. Some of you are like, well, that's not my story. I mean, folks weren't Christians. Parents weren't Christians. Or, you know, their parents weren't Christians. And so... Uh, Many of you, like me, first-generation Christians, and, and I know a lot of people today, because we live sort of in a, a weird time in history where people consider themselves victims if everything didn't go perfect in their upbringing. Let me just ask real quickly, how many of you had a perfect upbringing? I mean, perfect. Everything went, see, that's what I thought. Not one hand. So either we're all victims or we're all the same, and we're all the same in this. If you had godly parents, thank the Lord for them. Tell them how much you appreciate them if they're still around for you to do it. If they're around, make sure you do it because they won't always be around. If you didn't have godly parents, if you didn't grow up in a godly family, you can purpose that your kids will have godly parents and that the grandkids will have godly parents and godly grandparents. That's what we're doing in our family. You see, we can't change what happened before us, but we can determine what will happen from this point on. And so we're not victims of the past. We just look at it and say, well, we can do better. We have greater opportunity. Well, these guys, again, natural advantages, but, but that wasn't the greatest thing they had going. We read of them in verse six, they were both righteous before God walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Now that word righteous means they were acceptable to God. We would just use the word right if we weren't using a theological term. In other words, they were right in the sight of God. And that only happens one way. It happens when we put our faith in him and he imputes to us, imparts to us a righteousness that's acceptable to him. The scripture is very clear on this issue. There are none righteous, no, not one. And he means inherently. None of us, because of our nature or our works or our intentions or our keeping of laws or any of those things, those will not make us acceptable or right in the sight of God. In fact, there are a lot of people that think they're right because of what they don't do. Had a friend early on and in the early days and he came from, a, went to school at a place called Bob Jones, very, very super conservative uh, seminary. And, and, and he said that the, the major saying there was, we don't smoke and we don't chew. And we don't go with girls that do. And, uh, and, and so it was like, I'm sure there was more to it. But, but the point is, well, we're not doing that and we're not doing that and we're not doing that. And that's why we're more spiritual than you. But God looks at us and, and he doesn't say, oh, you don't do that. You're more spiritual. If you're not doing that because he's connected with you and shown you a better plan for your life, his intention, well, then you just thank him for delivering you from those things. But you don't walk around thinking you're better than people who've yet to be delivered or better than people who don't even know they need to be delivered. 
Now, there are those who are in that extreme. There are those in the other extreme. They think they can just do anything they want, live any way they want, just go to church and it'll all work out fine in the end. The ultimate issue will be righteousness. Are we acceptable to God? And we can only be accepted by God on his terms. So we come to him by faith. We trust in what Jesus did when he died for our sins, was buried and rose again. And then he declares us to be righteous. Now, these guys, this is before Jesus, remember. Jesus is going to be around soon in our story, but at this point, not yet born. So they're, they're trusting that the Messiah is coming. They're Jews. They know that the Messiah, the Savior, is going to come. Well, they're also, we're told, walking in all the commandments. The commandments come out of Exodus. The ordinances come out of Leviticus. So as we study through those books, you start to see it. They had a lot going. They had the temple. They had the sacrifices. They had the feast. They had the festivals. They had this religious heritage. But for all of that, the thing that causes God to say they were blameless is they were obedient. And blameless doesn't mean sinless. Certainly they weren't sinless because none are. But, but blameless means when people looked at their life and really looked, there would be no way to make an accusation that could stick. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't going to be accusations. We'll see it toward the end of all of this. A, a real irony in the fact that, that she would have certainly been judged for her inability to bear a child. In that culture, that was a shameful thing, not just a bummer, but they, they really would have looked down on her. And we'll come back to it because there's a context that will make it even more practical for us. Well, they had all this going for them. And yet we read in verse seven, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. Now it's been said, our extremity is God's opportunity. And we're going to see that's exactly what's happening here. There are many of you who have either been through it or you're going through it right now. You, you've gotten married. You're all excited about having kids, although people do wait later and later for both. But uh, that's another cultural issue. But if you're waiting and you're planning and you're doing all that you can do and no child is showing up, listen, the Bible says that children are a gift from the Lord. And there's no way we should automatically assume, well, maybe something's wrong in our walk or maybe God's not pleased with us or maybe there's, maybe there's nothing wrong at all. Maybe God's just delaying the gift because he has a plan to do something greater. And his timing's always perfect. It doesn't always feel like it to us you know we're sort of like Lord I need patience and I need it now and uh, you know we're that kind of people a lot of us so what happens is is you know they're waiting and they're praying and they're living a godly life and being good examples but they're still barren I do think there's a spiritual picture there for us because there are many here today who are upright before the Lord you have the righteousness of Christ you're living a blameless life but in spite of it, you don't seem to be as fruitful as, well, you would expect you'd be. You're not seeing people come to Christ because of your witness and you're like, well, what's wrong? I thought everything reproduced after its own kind. Why am I not reproducing? Well, here's the deal. You will. Jesus tells us, here's all we need to do. Abide in him because you're going to bear fruit. It will happen in time. So, so here, here's the deal with these guys. They're at a place where unless God does something miraculous, nothing's going to happen. And that's not a bad place to be, you see. If I'm in a situation where I can deal with it, I can handle it, I can do it, well, I will. But if I'm in a situation where only God can deal with it, well, then I have to go to him, don't I? And that's what happens with you as well. Well, our part in all of this is to walk by faith, to demonstrate that faith 
by our obedience and to patiently wait on the Lord. Well, verse eight says, while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, as Lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the altar of incense. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Now, there's a principle here that I think is oh so important, but there's also a picture. So let's see the picture first. We see dad serving as a priest. Now, he's not a father yet, but he's about to get the good news that he's going to have a son and he's going to have it with his wife, Elizabeth. So so here's the thing is that he was just doing what he was supposed to do. He's a priest. This is what priests do. But, but the picture is he's in there offering the incense. That's a ministry of prayer. And then all of the family, because this is the family of God, those separated to God and drawn to him, Israel, they're outside praying as well. So there's this, this unity between what the priest is doing and, and what the people are doing. They're all praying and praising. And then there's, there's yet a, a, another picture because we see the Lord answering the prayers. Now we're going to deal with what he was most likely praying and we're going to deal with the answer to that prayer. But, but I mentioned to you not just a picture, but a principle. As he was just going about his business, a once in a lifetime opportunity arose. And it's a very important principle. Here's why. Oftentimes the things that we're supposed to do are just mundane. The, the problem with, you know, tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday is, is each day can feel very much like those that came before. And uh, in the midst of him just doing, though, what he was supposed to do, the Lord shows up and, and gives him a, a once in a lifetime opportunity. That once in a lifetime opportunity to be the one to go in and burn incense on the altar. Now it was a once in a lifetime because there were 20,000 priests at this time. But how does the principle apply to us? Well, remember Moses? What was Moses doing when he was confronted by a burning bush and, and God began to speak to him out of that bush? Well, Moses was keeping sheep. He did it for 40 years and in the, the keeping of the sheep in the wilderness, he has this once in a lifetime experience, but something else was going on that whole time. God was preparing him to keep his flock as he would lead them out of Egypt and, and care for them in the wilderness for another 40 years. So, so the point is that, that you might be doing something that to you is just very ordinary. No big deal. It's just what you're supposed to do, but you're doing it faithfully. It's in the midst of that, that God is going to show up and give you extraordinary opportunities. And that's exactly what happens here. Well, as he um, is offering the incense and the people are praying, an angel appears kind of freaks him out, says he's troubled, says fear fell upon him. And then the angel speaks to him. Do not be afraid, verse 13, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Now, don't miss this. And, and it's something that unless you're familiar with the end of the Old Testament and the 400 years between the old and the new, you wouldn't be sensitive to it. God breaks 400 years of silence with a word of grace. Don't be afraid. Do you know the last word of the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, is the word curse. 
sort of a bad way for a book to end. And, you know, it's the close of the Old Testament. So it ends not just with a curse, but with the word curse. But the first words spoken here in the New Testament, words of grace, of encouragement, of, of peace, says, don't be afraid, Zacharias. Your prayer is heard. When considering Zacharias's faithfulness to continue to serve the Lord faithfully and live a godly life despite the reality that him and his wife were childless, think about this verse in Psalm 31:23. Oh, love the Lord, all you his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. The person who can continue to glorify God despite the trials and tragedy that life throws at them, that's the faithful person. The person who becomes angry with God, believing they did not deserve the hand that life dealt them, that's the proud person. Why proud? Think about the suffering of our Lord. When we become angry with God and refuse to live as Zacharias did because of what has happened in our lives, we're saying that we believe somehow that we deserve better than that which our Lord took upon himself, which he only did for us. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.